Should parents of tween girls be terrified? Peggy Orenstein will join us to talk about her new book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Media is saturated with sex, and yet we never have real and true conversations with our kids about the reality of sex. How do you turn one of the most shocking plays in NFL history into fodder for a novel? John Williams will be here to talk about Chris Batchelder's new book, The Throwback Special. I mean, is it friendship? Is it loyalty? Is it just sort of scratching this nostalgic itch all the time? It's unclear that any one of those things really satisfies these guys or gives them some organizing principle for their life. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Peggy Orenstein joins us now. Her new book is called Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Peggy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, I have so much to say about this subject, and I am sure you do, too, and you have written an entire (laughs) book on it. Did you? Your last book was on um, Cinderella Ate My Daughter. How did you get from there to here? You have a daughter. Was it sort of, were you tracking in a way her progression from Cinderella age to... Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, you know, I mean, I'm a mom and I have been writing about girls for 25 years, but, you know, now I'm a mom and I look at the culture that we live in that where sexualized images of women are everywhere. Every media is saturated with sex and yet we never have real and true conversations with our kids about the reality of sex. And it's really tempting, I think, as a parent to sort of put your head in the sand and, and go into denial and just say, oh, I don't want to know because there's really nothing grosser than the idea of your kid having sex except the idea of your parents having sex. But parenting out of ignorance and fear is really not the way to go. And what I hoped to do was to go out there and bring back the voices of girls and create a book that could be sort of a neutral space where parents and kids could could read about what was going on and discuss it without having to, you know, go too deeply into their own personal experiences. This is probably something your daughter doesn't want to think about, or maybe it is, but I think of these as sort of the, the Daisy trilogy. You had Waiting for Daisy, which was about, <laughs> you know... Uh... I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, you know, she's, she's completely disinterested in what I do. <laughs> One of the lines that I thought was very funny, um, but, you know, also very true in the review of your book was that the our reviewer, Cindy Levy, has a 13-year-old daughter and that every time she tried to talk to her about this book, I think she said that um, she ran out of the room and is probably in Nebraska by now. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and that's really familiar. I mean, my daughter will just roll her eyes at me and go, Mom, can we stop talking about your book? But I will tell you something. Um, my own mother, as far as I was concerned, she wouldn't shut up about sex. My mom was not a feminist, and she was a total Ozzie and Harriet mom. And she totally was telling me that, you know, you don't have sex until after you're married. But once you're married, sex should be equally pleasurable for men and women. And she and my dad had a great sex life. And I would just plug my ears and go, la, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. And yet, that message, I have to say in retrospect, was really important to me as I went into my own sexual experiences. That voice was really critical to my sense of my own entitlement. And I will also tell you, my mom, my mom died earlier this year, but about 10 years ago she came up to me and said, out of the blue, doesn't stop after 70, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, I plugged my ears and hummed. And again, I'm really glad she said that to me. When you think about this uh, this subject and, and the, the gener- generational differences, um, 
a lot of this is obviously you're looking at this as a kind of baby boomer generation mother looking at the way in which millennials and whatever post-millennials are called. Have we come up with a name for them? I think they're Z. Generation Z or the internet generation or digital kids. I don't know what those kids are. They come out of a 3D printer. That's where babies come from now. The 3D printer, honey. That's right. (laughs) I mean, did did your mother, uh, uh, before she died, I'm sorry, um, but did you think about her perspective on all this too when you were writing this book? She talked to me much more than I think a lot of people's mothers did. Mm -hmm. And I was really grateful for that. I mean, a lot of what you're advocating in this book is that parents talk more with their children, with their daughters, about sex. Where are they getting their information about sex now? Yeah, and I want to say, you know, when we say talking about sex, I think that we have to define what that means. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think we have to broaden our idea of the word sex, because we tend to think that that means intercourse. And kids are doing a whole heck of a lot more than that, and they're doing a whole heck of a lot more than that earlier. There's, you know, especially oral sex is something that we really have to talk to kids about. Monica's legacy. Well, it's not just that, though. It's also the legacy of abstinence education Mm -hmm. and, you know, making intercourse the line in the sand between, you know, sexually active and not sexually active or adulthood, you know, childhood and adulthood or, or whatever. And so... It allows kids to think that the other behaviors they're engaging in are not sex, are no big deal, and aren't subject to the same ideas about ethics and reciprocity and pleasure. So one thing is, you know, talking about sex when we're talking about sex differently, not just, you know, talking about danger, not just talking about risk, not just talking about contraception, but also talking about the ways to balance danger and risk with the joys and pleasures of sex so that they behave so that when they engage they're engaging ethically, responsibly, safely and enjoyably. A lot of this is to counteract what girls are learning about sex from the internet either directly or indirectly. How is the internet changing girls' understanding of sex and what it means for them? Information, information, right? It it giveth and it taketh away. <laughs> The Internet, you know, is so great about so many things. It's allowed girls to organize um, in anti-rape activism. It's been a huge boon to um, LGBTQ kids. It also um, has resulted in an explosion of porn. That has affected how kids um, view sex, and and they bring it into the bedroom. I mean, on the um, sort of, I guess you would say, perhaps more benign end, so many girls would say to me, my boyfriend uh, wants to know why I don't make those noises that women make in porn. Mm-hmm. And I heard that so often, I started to get like really not annoyed with the girls, but annoyed with the fact that they had to ask that question. Right. And I, my kind of journalistic remove would crack, and I'd say, look, you know, it's a movie. It right. needs a soundtrack. Everything in that movie is about performance. It is not about reality. It's about as real as pro wrestling. You know, there's research that shows that kids are increasingly consulting porn in part as an instruction manual, especially when nobody else is talking to them, when they're getting abstinence-only education in school and when their parents are silent. They're looking because they think that that's how they're going to learn how sex works. And that, you know, tells them basically, it gives them completely distorted ideas and images of women, of our bodies, of our pleasure, of our purpose. It eroticizes humiliation. At the other end of the spectrum, the more extreme end, there's been a big rise in anal sex among teenagers. There's been more than a doubling of of, um, them reporting that they've engaged in anal sex. And when um, there was research done 
on kids in England that were 16 to 18, which, you know, I mean, right now, I mean, you just have to pause a second ago. That is so very, very young. And what they found was that mostly it was boys who were pushing for anal sex. They were doing it not as an act of intimacy with their partners, but as a competition with other boys, as something to check off their list. They expected that girls were going to have to be coerced into it and that they could be coerced into it. And they expected that it would hurt, and the girls reported that it did. And both sexes blamed the girls for that pain, saying that the, you know, the girls were words that they used were like naive, flawed, unable to relax. So this is really directly filtering down into um, kids' sex lives. And I think on a more benign level, not really benign, but a, a, a perhaps a less explicit level maybe, over and over I think the popular culture tells girls that sexuality is performance, their body is for others, that how they look to others is more important than how they, their bodies feel to themselves, and that it's more important to them um, to be desirable than to be understanding their own desire. I think, obviously, there's a cultural misperception that um, pornography and sex or, or sexuality are the same thing, which, of course, they are not. But when you talk about um, pornography, we often talk about the way in which it affects uh, boys, the way in which it affects men. But what's troubling about what you seem to uh, have documented is that it also, that girls are um, internalizing boys' expectations and then adjusting their expectations accordingly so that they have to be pleasing, they have to be submissive, that their sexual pleasure is dependent upon that of the male partner. Yeah. um, When you look at the research on sexual satisfaction, you know, we kind of assume that we're saying the same. We're we're talking about apples and apples when we talk about sexual satisfaction and, you know, young men and young women, but we're really not. And what you see is that more often, not always, obviously, but more often, young women will measure their satisfaction by their partner's pleasure. So they'll say, you know, if he's satisfied, I'm satisfied. If he had an orgasm, I'm satisfied. Whereas young men measure their satisfaction by their own pleasure. (laughs) So if I had an orgasm, I'm satisfied. And the other, the flip side of that is that when they talk about bad sex, Mm -hmm. The language is very, very different. You know, boys will say, young men will say, I didn't have an orgasm or, you know, she wasn't that hot or something like that. Girls are more likely to say, to talk about pain, humiliation, degradation. Boys never used that language in the research. Did you find that girls are objectifying themselves? Yes. You know, I think what's what's really, this is one of the things that's really changed is that perhaps in our generation, um, we sort of railed against self-objectification. But now it is um, sold to girls as being something that is a source of power mm-hmm. and a source of confidence. Right. So a girl showed me this picture of herself in a little crop top and a little you know, short skirt, and she said, I'm proud of my body, and I never feel more liberated than when I'm wearing skimpy clothes. But then at the same time, you know, a few minutes later, she said if she gained weight, she no longer would feel good about wearing those skimpy clothes because some... Um, jerky boy would uh, make fun of her and call her, you know, what she said was the fat girl. Um, And so you have to, the question is not like, are girls getting slutty or something like that? But the question is, who gets to be proud of their body, under what circumstances, which bodies, and how liberating is it if the threat of humiliation always lurks? 
When you look back at the issues that you examined in your first two books, in School Girls, Young Women, Self-Esteem, and The Confidence Gap, and in Flux, Women on Sex, Love, Work, Kids, and Life in a Half-Changed World, I mean, does part of you feel like we're going backwards? I think progress is always a mixed bag, you know, and I think we have done a much better job or are doing a much better job of empowering girls to have a voice in the public realm. You know, I think that they feel more entitled to um, educational attainment. They feel more entitled to their professional goals in a lot of ways. You know, they're leaning in all over the place. But in this other realm, in the private realm, they're kind of toppling over. And I think that it's time that we look at that. And there was this great phrase that I learned over the course of the research from Sarah McLellan, who is a professor at University of Michigan, that was called Intimate Justice. And it's looking at our personal relationships through the same kind of lens that we look at the public sphere. So really thinking about, you know, who is entitled to engage sexually, who is entitled to enjoy it, who is the primary beneficiary of of an experience, what is good enough for both partners. And, you know, there's that old feminist line that the personal is political. And, you know, what could be more personal than our intimate relationships, and in a way, what can be more political? Yeah, because, I mean, on the outside, it looks like, okay, women are advancing in the workplace. Yeah. Um, there's incredible awareness of sexual harassment. Yeah. Uh, the issue of rape um, and awareness on that front has been hugely raised um, on college campuses and um, in the, you know, again, in the workplace, um, even to a lesser extent, uh, Hillary or not, uh, in the political sphere. And then you look at this, and it yeah. looks so incredibly retrograde. I know. I know. Well, it's interesting because everything that you listed that involved sex in that um, sentence involved surfacing female victimization. Right. I think that that we as a culture have become more comfortable talking about girls' victimization than girls' entitlement to pleasure. And I think that that's a big problem. And, you know, one of of the things that I talk about in the book is um, the Dutch model and how when they compare American college girls and Dutch college girls, that the Dutch girls' experience is so much better. You know, they they become sexually active later. They have fewer partners. They can talk to their partners. They can express their needs and wants. They're more likely to feel pleasure in sex. They feel better about their bodies and their body image. I mean, everything we want for our kids, for our daughters. And one of the biggest differences is that they found that American parents, mostly mothers, because American fathers don't talk about it, but are, are just as comfortable talking about sex, but that they tend to emphasize risk and danger. And that when Dutch mothers talk about sex, they talk about balancing risk and danger with pleasure and joy. I want to get to like the dread question for journalists um, uh, who write books, which is, okay, um, you've shown us all of this. You've shown us this problem. Now what is the solution? That Dutch model is something that really, for me as a parent, it really shook me because I realized that my tendency, too, would have been to talk to my daughter about contraception and about um, consent, which, can I just say, you know, I mean, super important, super important really low bar for a sexual experience. I wasn't raped. That's pretty low bar. So consent, and I would have talked to her about disease protection, but I'm not sure that I would have said, you know, and honey, your clitoris is for making good feelings. 
you know, masturbation is a really great thing, and girls have orgasms too, and, you know, things like that. And honestly, I will say that to my daughter. I don't have a problem saying that to my daughter. Or I, I shouldn't say that. I find it mortifying and embarrassing, but I do it anyway. And Does she find it mortifying and embarrassing? Sure. I mean, who doesn't find it mortifying and embarrassing? I mean, I went a friend about, I would say, this was like eight years ago, um, a friend of mine asked me to talk to her daughter who was in high school, um, and who she thought was going to start having intercourse with her boy- with her boyfriend, which she'd been going out with for a while. So we went out to lunch, and I really wanted the ground, you know, to swallow me up rather than say what I felt I needed to say. But I said, look, you know, I know you're thinking about this, and I'm not telling you that you should or you shouldn't, but I just want you to also think about these questions. You know, do you know what your clitoris is? Have you ever masturbated? Have you had an orgasm on your own? Have you had an orgasm with your partner? Do you feel like you can talk to him? about your needs and your wants and your desires and what feels good to you? Do you feel like you can talk to him about your limits? If you can't do those things, Mm -hmm. exactly what are you trying to accomplish here by having intercourse? Is it just something that you think you need to check off your list at this point? Or, you know, is this really, how are you thinking about your sexual relationship with your boyfriend and how are you thinking about how you're expressing intimacy and how you're expressing pleasure? And she looked at me with these, like, saucer eyes. I mean... And, you know, the whole time I'm going, oh, God, oh, God, swallow me up, swallow me up. You know, but I did it. And I will tell you, it's been eight years now since I had that first conversation with that girl. Mm -hmm. We talk all the time. We are so close. And, you know, she calls me up and tells me about what's going on in her sex life. She calls me up and tells me about what's going on in her work life. And it really has made a difference to me to think, you know, this is a way to grow closer with our kids. This is a way to build trust. This is a way that we stay on their team and stay as their advisors as they get older. And isn't that what we want? Right. Part of me thinks, well, it's all very well and good that all of the good conscientious parents who read your book or are aware of this issue will talk to their children. I know. But what do you do about this much larger, <laughs> right, and this much larger cultural issue um, because um, it takes a lot to, to move the culture? And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just, I can only do what I can do. <laughs> and that's putting out work that provides some perspective, provides a countervailing example. And I, you know, I really do believe in that kind of change because people would say that when I put um, Cinderella my daughter out, a lot of interviewers would say, well, how can you change these big corporations like Disney and Mattel? And, you know, to a degree, well, you can't. At the same time, since that book has come out and since, you know, more people have got on the bandwagon of being disgusted by this sort of tiny little pink box that girls were being forced into... There has been change in the toy industry, and there has been change in movies, and we are seeing, you know, it's not like everything has been transformed, but we are seeing a significant change both in mainstream and in alternative media for girls. So I think, you know, we can make change, not for everybody, not everywhere, but we can make significant change. Peggy, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Peggy Ornstein is the author of Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape, reviewed this week on our cover.
Alexandra Alter is here with news from the publishing and literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. All right, you've promised me happy bookstore news. I have very happy bookstore news. So Nashville has a brand new bookstore, and it is actually an old van that has been retrofitted as a bookmobile by Parnassus Books, which is a popular independent bookstore there. It's co-owned by the novelist Ann Patchett and Karen Hayes. And this week they launched um, Pegasus, which is their mobile bookstore. It's going to rove around town five days a week. It's not going to fly? Uh, unfortunately, it'll it'll probably speed along. But um, it's, I think, a pretty brilliant way to expand their geographic reach and their customer base. It's something that a lot of independent bookstores are looking at, not through vans, although there are a few of those, but a lot of independents are expanding into multiple locations and becoming kind of mini chains. I would love it if they did that in like a big city and you could tailor what you have in terms of the inventory to different neighborhoods exactly. based on their interests. Yes. There was this kind of vacuum with Borders closing and Barnes & Noble continuing to close stores and independents have had a surprising resurgence. So I think people have seen opportunities to expand their footprint, essentially. But that can be risky. I mean, you move into an up-and-coming neighborhood and you have extra rent. You have to, you know, staff that place, extra inventory. This way, um, in this van, they're just going to be scooting around town and sort of meeting people where they are at farmer's markets, at food truck rallies, outside of restaurants. It's like a pop-up store. Exactly. And um, the great thing, too, is that it's very fitting for this particular bookstore. Parnassus was named um, after Christopher Morley's novel, Parnassus on Wheels, which is about a woman who travels around selling books out of her horse-drawn caravan. And Karen Hayes, one of the co-owners, always wanted a bookmobile. She was, after they named the store Parnassus, she had this dream of of getting one. And she was kind of envious of these taco trucks and ice cream trucks around town, which can, you know, go wherever people are gathered. And so she found this van on eBay last spring. Um, she bought it for $10,000 from an old, um, it was from a small library in Georgia. And the van already had the angled shelves that you need to keep the books in place. But they had to give it a new paint job and other things. So it still required, you know... $20,000 worth of work. But you think about that compared to a whole new location, it's it's a small sort of price to pay to get your name out there. Plus, she said, it's a rolling advertisement for our store. Oh, and the other good news is the dogs in this, in this store, they have about four resident dogs love riding around town in the van. Exciting. So you get, you get <laughs> books and a dog. You might see a dog. The store also, it's turning into kind of a petting zoo. They also recently acquired a part-time lamb named Buttercup. So <laughs> I want you to do a roundup, Alexandra, of bookstores around the country and their animals. Can I you would have that love be your next to do story, that. Please? I would like that to be my entire beat and job. There was a bookstore, a community bookstore in Park Slope, which had a resident dog named Priscilla, and I would go there every week just to pet this dog. Um, I would buy books too, but Priscilla was really the main reason I was there. And, All right, bring a, a photographer. I'm seeing a slideshow. <laughs> Thanks, Alexandra. Thank you, Pamela. John Williams joins us now to talk about a review he wrote this week of the throwback special by Chris Bachelder. John, thanks for being here. Hi, Pamela. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, it wasn't far, given that you work here. No, I made the trek. This book review, you hand it in, and the first thought I had was, wow, this sounds really interesting. I can't believe I'm interested in a book about football. <laughs> but it's not totally about football. Well, it, it is and it isn't. It's really about modern manhood, I think. And it's 
it has a very interesting conceit at the center of it, something that's very imaginative, I think, which is that a group of middle-aged guys get together every year and they recreate this very iconic and gruesome football play that, that every one of my generation and, and older remembers very vividly, which was uh, in 1985 – um, Lawrence Taylor of the Giants, who's I think by consensus still considered the the best defensive player to ever play football, sacked the Washington Redskins quarterback Joe Theismann on Monday Night Football in front of a really big national audience because of the way he fell on top of Theismann and the way the play unfolded. Theismann's leg was broken very badly. It's like a terrible name for that. I'm sorry. It is Theismann. Thiesman. And he fell on his leg. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's well, so this funny. is the difference between the way a, a, a non-football watching woman sees and hears this story and the way a man sees and hears this story. Because all I could hear was that he fell on the leg and his, and his name, name is Thiesman. <laughs> but never mind. Okay. All right. Tell us about that play, John. Well, this is a play that I only remember sort of vaguely seeing as a kid, but everyone talked about it for a really long time because it was quite graphic. And, you know, the announcers said, okay, we're going to show the replay, but please, if you're at all squeamish, don't look. Um, and I'm sure people can find it on YouTube now if they're sadists. But it also became uh, Michael Lewis's best-selling book, The Blind Side, which is itself a remarkable book, starts with a really long chapter uh, analyzing Taylor's effect on football and how the way that he menaced quarterbacks really changed the way that the game was played in very uh, specific ways. But Batchelder really uses this as just kind of a launching pad to get these guys together in this somewhat rundown hotel and for their 16th annual meeting of recreating this play. And the recreation is sort Sort of, you know, it is what it sounds like, which is kind of a combination of, you know, fantasy football or fantasy baseball and like Civil War reenactment. Is it like the person with the short straw gets to have their leg broken? They, <laughs> well, as as the editor of this review asked me while he was editing it, he said they don't actually break the guy's leg, do they? And no, they don't. It's not. They're not that sick. They sort of have a lottery, and they each get to pick based on where they draw um, the player they want to be, except for the quarterback, who the last guy just gets sort of the burden of being him um, and being at least tackled if not actually broken don't show up late to this reunion no don't and um well it's sort of a lottery draw and there's a lot of drama also around the way that they draw the names and the and the traditions they have around that how many people are in the group well there are 22 guys to form the two teams there are 11 guys on each side of the football field and obviously many of the guys are going to be playing parts that really don't have anything to do with the play there are probably four or five really key guys who get to be part of the drama but the play really only happens at the end of the novel it's fairly brief um don't give it away no, no, I won't. But the novel is really, it's not that long a novel. It's a fairly slender book and it's a very wistful book. And really what it's about for the great majority of it is just these guys gathered at this hotel, each of them kind of thinking about the different place in life they're at. They're all middle-aged. So they're dealing with things like divorce or problems with their children or problems with their health. And a lot of it, I think, is about the way that men kind of substitute habit for emotional expression Mm -hmm. and the way that they think to themselves, well, of course I care about this thing. I show up to do it every year, don't I? And of course this parking spot is important to me. And they kind of subsume a a lot of more explicit emotional responses in just these patterns they partake in together. What do you think of the idea that that it's this football play that is what brings them together? Is it because that's a moment of such incredible drama and emotion? I think that there's there's some of that and there's also it's a it's a moment of real nostalgia because for a certain generation this was really a kind of profound moment in sports that would be burned into their memory. You said everyone in my generation and I just want to note that a couple of us in your generation may not yes. have that feeling toward this particular play but yes. Yes of course I was 11 at the time so it's actually all football watching peoples of that generation. Exactly all sports fans of that generation okay. I guess. Anyone who was probably you know, eight years old or older at the time who was into sports remembers it. What is he saying about modern manhood? 
I think he's saying a lot of different things at once. That one of the things about the book is that this is really a group portrait. You don't get a sense really. I just flipped back through the book this morning and I started listing a few of the names. These guys start to blend together a little bit. There's Andy, George, Peter, Derek, Robert, Jeff, Carl, Trent, Chad, Gil. And that's just from a few pages of looking at the book. I don't think that you're going to end this book and six months later remember any specific character in it. I think what you're going to remember is the fact that these guys are searching for something that they don't really explicitly ask themselves for. And you're not sure if they even get it. I mean, is it friendship? Is it loyalty? Um, Is it just sort of scratching this nostalgic itch all the time? It's unclear that any one of those things really satisfies these guys or gives them some organizing principle for their life. And yet you can feel very deeply their emotional need to do this thing. And so there's that kind of, um, I think he gets a lot out of that dichotomy between they seem to be sort of aimlessly going through life in many ways, and yet they're all thinking very deeply about their lives. I think it's a very male kind of behavioral pattern. Let's talk a little bit about the tone of the book. Maybe read a passage that particularly struck you. Yeah, I said the tone was wistful. Um, it's also he can be funny. I think that he keeps that in check maybe more than he would in another book that was was a little bit more humorous in its intent. You can tell sometimes from the jokes he writes that that he has a very wry sense of humor. Like I talked about them being a hive, and there's this funny sense of him describing them as a fleet. And so there's this one moment where he says, um, he goes through a few of their names, uh, and he talks about the fact that this one guy named Trent had gained a lot of weight, perhaps 30 pounds, but the change was not remarkable. And then he writes, the men had reached an age when they gained and lost significant things in relatively short periods of time, and it was not unusual for someone to show up in November having acquired or divested weight, God, alcohol, sideburns, blog, pontoon boat, jewelry, stepchildren, potency, fertility, cyst, tattoo, medical devices that clipped to the belt and beeped, or huge radio-controlled model airplanes. And so he he kind of like pans out a lot, I think, and, and talks about them as a group of people gaining and losing things and going through these experiences together in middle age. See, this is why I think you're going to get other people who don't care about football interested in reading this book. One hopes. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. John Williams reviews the throwback special by Chris Batchelder this week in the book review. Greg Coles joins us now for Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new on the list? Well, we've got some historical fiction over on the hardcover fiction list. Starting down at number 16, Alison Pataki, who is, of course, the daughter of New York's former governor, George Pataki, has a novel called Sisi that is about the Austro-Hungarian Empress Elizabeth. Then at number 14, more historical fiction, uh, this time by Tracy Chevalier, who is probably most famous still for her novel Girl with a Pearl Earring, and she she wrote some other um, historical novels also about the art world. And not only about the art world, but and this one is not. Um, this is set in 19th century Ohio um, about some people who own an apple orchard. It's called At the Edge of the Orchard, new at number 14. Not the first time she's written about 19th century Ohio either. She also had a novel of the uh, Underground Railroad called The Last Runaway. Then at number nine, um, Christine Feehan continues her Carpathian novel, which is a uh, kind of supernatural um, urban fantasy series. Um, This one's called Dark Promises, new at number nine. 
At number seven, another series novel uh, by Randy Wayne White, who uh, continues his Doc Ford series. The 23rd book in this series is called Deep Blue. It is not about the IBM computer that uh, beat Gary Kasparov at chess. <laughs> you haven't read the 22nd installment. Now is the time. Yeah, yeah t- time to catch up. Then at number two, um, Danielle Steele is back on the list with a novel called Property of a Noble Woman. And at number one, another series novel, James Patterson uh, has written a book with Mark Sullivan called Private Paris. That is part of Patterson's private series um, about the global private detective uh, Jack Morgan. The title of this week's bestseller list on the fiction side is escapism. (laughs) Let's all escape from reality. What's going on uh, on the reality side? Um, Just one new book this week on the nonfiction side. Um, Probably everyone's still looking to escape. Um, The new book in nonfiction is Douglas Brinkley's Rightful Heritage, new at number 12. Brinkley, of course, the popular historian, uh, has written this book about FDR, um, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, making the case for him as America's great environmental president. This is the, the, the sort of sequel to his book about Teddy Roosevelt being the great environmental <laughs> president. <laughs> there you go. Next up, I don't think George W. Bush, great environmental <laughs> president, but we'll see, perhaps. All right, Greg, thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.